Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Bob Reef. Bob is the executive director of San Diego Sports Innovators, a nonprofit business development organization with an accelerator focused on the sport and active lifestyle industries. SDSI supports companies in all stages by fostering innovation, providing business mentorship, and building communities. Prior to SDSI, Bob headed up companies such as Merrill Footwear, Reef, Sanook, and Nike Golf. Bob, thanks for being on today. Oh, thank you, Darren. Glad to be here. So take me back. Talk to me about where you grew up in, what inspired you to get into the active lifestyle space? Like, What were your interests, your hobbies, and just how did that transition happen? Well, I've been at it a long time, as you know. My dad was in the service. We moved every two or three years. I think that's had some long-term impact on my incredible lack of attention to detail after about three years. <laughs> that seemed to be my life cycle. But uh, we moved all over the U.S. and uh, we lived back east when I was about 12 years old, and I got involved with a pretty serious accident. And uh, my uh, dad uh, retransferred out here and was able to go over to Balboa Naval Hospital. And there, I had an open wound uh, on my leg. The doctor suggested my mom would be good for me to get in the ocean. Uh, we live right in Coronado, about a block from the ocean. So uh, that was the beginning, uh, probably, of uh, my long lifetime affair with the ocean. So, uh, of course, we started surfing. I was 13. There were, I don't know, maybe maybe 10 of us in Coronado at the time were surfing. So we'd be out there, no wetsuits, freezing to death, and uh, had this wound that was getting a salt bath every, whatever, three or four days, depending upon how active my mom was and watching us go to school or go to the beach. I think that sort of set it in for me. And after that, we continued to move around and um, just when it was time to go off to college, which is going to be CU for me, uh, Colorado, my mom and dad were transferred to Japan. In those days, it was kind of a problem. Uh, Japan was far, far, far away. <laughs> I arrived at CU in a bus, and uh, they arrived in uh, Japan in a, in a uh, ship. And the consequences were at Boulder, I discovered it's really kind of a country club for rich kids. At least it was in those days. I, I suspect it still is. So I went to work right away, you know, doing whatever I had to do to feed myself and uh, and so on. And I fell into the ski industry by working in a little ski shop there in town. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, and after my wife graduated from school, we went back to San Francisco and I just knocked on the door of a local shop and uh, ski shop and said, hey, I've been dealing with Bob Beatty from the ski team and been roomating with, rooming with people like Spider Savage, who were in my day famous uh, skiers, Olympic skiers. And I got a job and I found out that there's these things called ski reps and that they sell material to uh, retailers and that in the ski business, they don't work in the summer. So it was a perfect combination of my natural laziness and my interest in skiing that got me going in the business. So I worked for several years as a rep and then uh, as a product line manager and then national sales manager. And then 
you know, some of those type of executive jobs and, and finally uh, helped a friend get uh, Merrill going. And that was sort of the beginning of a change for us because that happened at a time when I had awakened to the demographics um, in the marketplace, which I really don't had no concept of uh, prior to that. And I found out that uh, I'm not a baby boomer. I'm one year too old, but there are a lot of baby boomer males right behind me. And it occurred to me that maybe that they might like to do the things I'm doing. And since I'm a little bit older, I've been there first, maybe I can make a business out of it. So the consequences was joining up with Clark Mattis up at Merrill. And we did a pretty good job of that and got it sold, as you know. And Clark still works there to this day, the founder. And it sort of set me on a trajectory of in the startup community, usually as the operator. And uh, my uh, one of my clients was Ralph and Jerry Lauren, actually Jerry, who's the eldest brother, uh, of course, in that amazing, amazing experience called Polo. But, you know, Jerry helped us uh, dimensionalize our thinking. We made the first uh, Polo Sport boots by Merrill for them and got them started. And uh, so when I when uh, we sold uh, Merrill, and I didn't really have a job, so I started looking for a job. And as you know, it led to being the general manager, president, whatever you want to call it, at Nike Golf. And uh, we had some luck there, you know, signed Tiger Woods. It seemed to be a big deal and uh, has remained one ever since. But um, living in Portland, you know, the rain's tough. And I had the chance to go to work for Ely Callaway. And as you know, I came back down south and moved into Encinitas. And uh, I don't ever want to leave it again. So it uh, sort of set off this series of opportunities where, you know, worked with Ely for a while and then had the chance to uh, work with Fernando and Santi uh, Gary and, and at Reef. And we sold Reef and then on to my buddy Jeff Kelly, worked with him at Sanook, which was sold. And we started a little stand-up paddle company at the very, very, very earliest beginning of stand-up paddling. That was fun, called Boardworks. My partner, Mike Fox, sold that business. And a little bit later, we started a business uh, called OTZ Shoes, and we sold that to a big Korean company, a really big Korean company. And I've been running SDSI ever since. So that's the 57-year history of me in business. What a fascinating history and just something I extracted from our previous conversation, just how you've just had the opportunity to align with so many early visionary founders and help create some of that operational stability, some of those platforms truly really be successful. But talk to me about the first one. It seems like that was the Merrill opportunity and how you partner with the early founders to really get that off the ground. What was that like? How did you go about learning? Because your experience was in terms of working around the ski industry and on ski resorts, been how do you develop some of those skills to really be that operational expert in that leading, that guiding hand for the Merrill people? Well, you know, I, th I think I looked out when I moved up north to Seattle the first time. I went up there to be a product line manager for this little company. It's called A&T Ski Company. Prior to that, I had been a salesman. We had some products you knew, uh, Solomon and K2, as an example. We were the first sale selling organization for those two brands. And so I learned about uh, retailing and I knew about selling. I was selling quite a bit of merchandise, selling almost a couple of million dollars of merchandise in those days. So it was a pretty big deal for me. So I knew how to, how to, what to do with the products when I got it. And I was forced to develop concepts for the brands to sell them to my retailers. Because in those days, there wasn't much brand marketing. There was just advertising. And probably to the detriment of the brands, reps across America were developing their own story, their own brand story. And I worked on mine too, so to be honest. The next opportunity for me came to move into the office and to start help with the buying team. So then I was introduced to the whole necessity of, of managing margin, understanding, forecasting, uh, you know, 
trying to always keep a consumer's eye view to it while knowing that it's filtered through having to sell to ski retailers. So I had a pretty extensive background, but I didn't know it. And we went on uh, in our career path out to uh, Vermont. I worked with a fellow named Hugh Harley and Dick Swan, and uh, we were the first guys to actually start Nordica USA, which is a ski boot company. We didn't really start the company. We opened the office in Italy, and that went along for a while. But again, it's still, you know, playing along now, learning how to import, how to sell, you know, how to market, how to distribute, how to run a warehouse. None of those things were active in my business experience. They're just, you know, do and learn, do and learn, and, uh, you know, try not to get too much scar tissue along the way. But by the time um, we're done with the ski business, um, basically... Our time at Reikley Molitor ended in kind of a catastrophic way. The owner of the company was killed and the ensuing ownership was uh, not very interested in growing the business. So I really um, had no choice but to try and find a new alternative. And I, from my point of view, the ski business was getting very narrow and very wealth-oriented, of course, you know, as, as it remains. And it is very akin to farming. You never know if it's going to snow, if it doesn't snow, it's this or that. It's very retailer. It just seemed like it was a dead end for me. A friend of mine was um, the uh, principal backer of Merrill. I had no idea what was going on, but he asked me to come up and, and uh, join the team up there. I think he forgot to tell the team I was coming, so it wasn't, I wasn't exactly welcome with open arms. But uh, we managed to get our act together and f- find positions for each other and to start to understand that Merrill was a real brand. It was not a label. It wasn't a fantasy but it was a high-end brand. And that very time, I think we talked about this, Darren, the, that's when XL was just coming into the very limited use. And I was starting to learn about columns and how you could use these things and take a three or five-year plan by taking three or five columns <laughs> and get your thoughts down on paper. And we discovered at Merrill that we could add categories within price ranges and that we could start to appeal to a much larger group. We discovered that there were two really good, re- three good retailers at the time who would help us do this, L.L. Bean, REI, and Eastern Mountain Sports, and that they reached far more consumers than we could ever reach in our life. I think Bean that year, those years, was mailing about 7 million catalogs out. So, of course, if we could be in there, it would be a really great thing. So, um, yeah, that was the beginning of bringing together all the aspects of managing design, development, uh, manufacturing, importation, distribution, selling, and marketing all sort of came together. And uh, there were a lot of business lessons, too, for uh, the original founders, uh, Randy Merrill, John Schweitzer, and Clark Mattis. It wasn't uh, what you would expect being the founders, because in order to keep the company going, they they basically de-equitized ourselves. And uh, when we, um, uh, representing the ownership, sold the company, I would say that uh, we really did not benefit in it. I put in for me what was a substantial amount of money and the payback I got was exactly equal to what I put into it. And that was three years after the company was sold. So I can, I can promise you in those uh, three years, Darren, I was thinking about my lack of prowess in the investing community and, and misunderstanding transactions. And I got myself a lot smarter uh, while I was up at Nike. So, but that's how it started. And, uh, you know, it, I, I wish that it should have been more financially successful for Clark and John and Randy and even me than it was. But we made a series of mistakes that young entrepreneurs are tempted to make, you know, by giving up equity and instead of debt and so on. So I really learned a lot. It, was, it, it reset my life. Yeah, those can be some 
painful lessons, but hopefully that's been very successful in terms of learning from some of those early lessons. What else did you learn from that experience? Because that sounds like a really important foundational moment of your career and really informed the rest of it is, is what were some other key lessons you learned early on? Well, a couple of things. One, one I learned is, is what, what is my role? And unfortunately, a super ineffective way to, to find out what your role is, is basically you fail kind of upwardly until you finally figure out that the problem is not out there. It's actually you. But, uh, you know, what, what I discovered, uh, you know, first of all, we're, Clark and John are, uh, I would say, really true entrepreneurs and had a, a unique prism. When they, when they looked at, at things, their, their aperture was different than mine. When I looked at it, I looked at, hey, it's a big market. There's a lot of people out there. Maybe they want to wear hiking boots. If we could break the categories down and, and sell, you know, three or four categories with five or six products in each category, that would be a lot better than selling one. But John and Clark were thinking, you know, there's a change going on. Young people want to go outdoors. Their footwear should reflect technical way to get out outdoors in the very best product. They were thinking branding. I was just thinking operations. I would say it really came to a head to us when we were contacted unbelievably by by Ralph and Jerry Lauren to to come up to Vermont. So Jerry actually came to Vermont. This you can imagine this is a magnificent person in my mind uh, came up and he said we understand that uh, you guys are leaders in the footwear category and outdoor we want to launch polo sport. You probably have to ask Clark Mattis what his recollection is, but mine was total disbelief. I, I I couldn't believe you could find us. I couldn't believe this could be happening. But there Jerry was sitting right in front of us. And he said to us, uh, in particular to Clark, who did the design, hey, tell me, open up your treasure chest and show me your your treasures. And Clark is a literal guy. He says, I don't have a treasure chest. <laughs> we had a big laugh about it. Jerry said, let me start over again. What are your dreams? If you could, If you could make the ultimate boot, what would it look like? And Clark started off by saying, well, it'd be a $500. And he, before he could get any further, Jerry had this kind of, a, I don't know, theatrical kind of breakdown. He goes, Clark, 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 stop, 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 stop. This is the design department. We don't talk money. We don't know about money. That's for other people. We're designers. Tell me your design. What would it look like? What would it be? What really gets you going? And you can imagine we all leaned in and had a hell of a learning experience. And we found out right then and there that Jerry already knew something we didn't know. And that is that we really had something. And it could really be something. And, and when, when Jerry left, it caused us to huddle up and, and rethink our, our roles. And I understood at that point that I'm not the entrepreneur. I'm more of an operator. I'm a thinker, kind of. I mean, nobody wants to claim that, but at least momentarily I have some good thoughts. And I was thinking really heavily about the future starting right, right then and there. That How can we grow this company successfully? We know that we're way too small and we don't have a lot of money. You know, I started thinking all those types of thoughts. Those are operational thoughts. Clark and John continued along thinking about best products, you know, true branding stuff. And that lesson came, uh, became more evident to me um, a little bit later on in my career. Because my next stop after we sold uh, uh, Merrill was at, at Nike Golf. And there, you know, you, you're, you're definitely a player in a system. And uh, it's hard at, uh, at Nike to be to be yourself because you're surrounded by so much talent. That's a completely different game, completely different game. So uh, that, those lessons, though, that, that I learned at Merrill came back out as we got into smaller businesses, starting with Reef and so on. Sure. I mean, what a powerful lesson in terms of discovery or role. I mean, I think a lot about strengths. I think a lot of times people think about 
you know, who's the leader I, I think people think I should be, or do I need to be the CEO? Do I need to be the visionary versus the reality, which is, hey, in your case, it's an incredible operator who could really partner with those visionaries, whether it was the Lawrence or the world or the Merrills, is just being that person who could actually take that business to the next level by operationalizing it. Later on, that was my thought, you know, that often puts you in conflict with a, you know, with a visionary. I remember Jeff Kelly and I at Snook were working on a project and uh, Jeff was frustrated with the, you know, the process and, and founders often are, but you know, it's not hard to make things happen immediately. And, uh, and Jeff said, I don't know what you guys are doing. I said, well, Jeff, we're trying to make your dream come true. He goes, well, you're not doing a very good job. So, <laughs> you know, there's always that, that issue there. But if you want to keep it in story context, you know, when, when I left Merrill, I had a little chip on my shoulder about, you know, what happened? We made this investment in time and money and basically other people greatly benefited from all of our efforts. And uh, John went on to other things. Clark stayed on with the company as a designer and he did quite well over the, he's still there. And, you know, we're both kind of old. He did well, but not for me. And, uh, so when I got to Nike, it was a different story and it was completely accidental how I got there. It was two parallel paths. Uh, I had shared my footwear concept for a new golf shoe with a friend of mine up in Canada and uh, was expecting, I believe I told you, so I was expecting a callback from him. And I sent him my business plan. I don't know if you've been in this position, but I, I sent it to him on day one. And on day two, I started sitting by the telephone, you know, and after about 10 days, I was pissed off that I didn't get any call back from a really good friend of mine with some advice. Sort of simultaneously, um, I had bought some golf shoes to test, and one of them was a pair of Nikes, and I'm playing some guys from the, from the golf industry, and my shoes were killing me. I was limping around, and uh, I didn't know if I was going to make it 18 holes, and we were calling them the air bucket of blood, you know, dreaming up all these nasty, snarky names, and we probably had a few cocktails as well. And uh, finally, the uh, Tom Brown, who's publisher of Golf Digest in those days, said, why don't you just call Nike and tell them their shoes suck? That seems a little presumptuous, but I did. And uh, they gave me a contact. I called and talked to Tom Clark, who's a, the uh, CEO of those days. And, and I think he's still uh, running new business development for Nike. But anyhow, Tom came to New York and we were chatting about, laughing about the golf industry. And I asked uh, Tom, uh, you know, I said, do you know anything about the golf industry? He said, no, I don't play golf and I don't think I will. You know, it's kind of the intimation is that, you know, it's not really a sport and he asked me if I've ever been in the business. I said, no, I'm a, like a medium, low handicap golfer. I've never been in the golf industry. I've been making shoes and apparel for a long time, but that's what I do. He said, so Tom, do you know about the golf industry? He said, no. He said, the only thing I know is we have a job and there's an awful lot of people from the golf industry trying to get it. And I don't know, in a moment of clarity, I told Tom, I said, well, you should be aware, you know, that it has uh, some legacy attributes that are not that great, like racism, sexism, and, and, uh, and so on, you know. Uh, if you hire somebody from the industry, you might be importing those attributes into Nike. And so that, uh, it seems like to me, it'd be better to export Nike attributes into golf and make golf look like Nike. And he said, well, Bob, said, that's a pretty good answer. And so, you know, oddly enough, about a month later, I'm up in that Nike campus parking my car out there, 5,000 other cars and scratching my head and wondering what the hell happened. But once we got there, it was quite an amazing experience. And, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of working more directly with Phil than probably I should have. I don't know why. I guess I should tell you the way I got there then was, uh, you know, I talked to Tom about this job and my friend up in Canada had just sold his company to Nike. That's why he didn't call me back. And he, he called me back and said, hey, 
Bob, he said, uh, just sold my company. And I go, that's great, Pierre. You, you should be proud. It's all great. That's all about you. How about me? And he said, well, at the end of the uh, process, he said, Phil said, well, that takes care of hockey. Now let's get after golf. And he said, I, I had your, your business plan. I gave it to Phil. So common variation, right? Two separate things happened at the same time resulted in me moving up to Nike. And then it was quite a, quite a ride from there. Yeah, what was that like? What was Nike Golf like in the early days? And then what was it like working next to a, I mean, a true business luminary such as Phil Knight? Well, it was intimidating. And, you know, and they're, they're not shy people. So Tom came over to my office before I got there and wrote on my blackboard. And by the way, my office was next to risk management on the campus. <laughs> I thought that was intentional. But uh, he wrote on the, on the wall, three things I want you to do. Fix shoes, fix shoes, fix shoes. So I arrived to that environment and a little bit later, I got a call from Phil to kind of a welcoming call that I thought was a put on from some of my friends. So I go, who is this? And it's this Phil Knight. And I'm like, bullshit, I don't believe it. But anyhow, uh, it, was, it was an experience. Um, Nike is a, a monster machine, really, really efficiently run. Each employee there is a, is a branding specialist. If you're a Nike employee and you're not a brand champion, you won't be there long, I can tell you that. So everybody understands the branding very clearly. But it also works in a series of kind of vertical businesses that are organized around design, development, manufacturing, and so on. And you, and you, you reach in to get the services. The bigger your enterprise inside Nike, the, the more resources you get or the higher quality resources you would get. So we're Nike. First of all, we didn't really qualify in most employees' minds to even be there. So the, the business plan at Nike Golf was to make Nike Golf part of Nike. That's challenge right away because the, the supposition was for old white guys riding around in carts, smoking cigars and drinking, right? That was the golf's unfortunate image inside Nike. So that was the first thing. The second thing, though, was to try and make golf look like Nike. That was the, kind of the white lines that we were operating with all along. And I, I had to say, I have to say, I got some really good people that were assigned by Nike to me, keep me on the road, and they did a good job. And we ended up, as you know, uh, with this idea of a global foursome that included uh, ultimately Tiger. I'd love to hear about that, but it's such a fascinating thing. You talked about exporting Nike into golf or making golf look more like Nike. It seems like it's so many other times it's in the action sports space, them harnessing the brand, the, the imagery from a sport, especially surfing is obviously the most noteworthy of that. But it's so interesting to think that Nike had such a, such a brand presence that they could actually influence the way golf was perceived. Like, talk to me about that journey and, and how you guys thought about doing that. Because that's a huge transition. Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting thing. I was, not, I was certainly not up to that task, believe me. The, the outcome was far greater than me, uh, that's for sure. But uh, we did some research. We found out that the golf industry thought we couldn't be anything, that we wouldn't amount to hill of beans, that, you know, that we're nothing and we're just the 800-pound gorilla with no knowledge. That was one thing. And then, then we, we, um, we had a really, really good uh, sort of sports marketing guy in our group. His name is Joe Moses. And, and Joe came from the really inside golf. And, uh, and Joe felt that uh, four golfers was a big enough team that you don't need. Like now they have everybody. I mean, I would still say in my mind, that's, that's still not a great solution. I wouldn't do that yet. But at any rate, I don't know if it was Joe or the marketing guy suggest, let's just get a team, one from each continent, more or less, and call it the global foursome and see what we can do. And so the idea at first was simply to prove that we could be part of golf. And so the first guy we hired is Nick Price, one of the nicest people in golf ever and a, a, an incredible talent, that's for sure. 
So that softened the edge for Nike. And we ran a series of ads that said, hey, we're playing golf. And it was pictures of guys standing in line since four o'clock in the morning, Beth Page, to play public golf. We felt we proved to the golf industry that we understood golf maybe better than they did. So that was that was phase one. It worked, went quite well. We had Michael Campbell, who's a, a Maori indigenous person from down New Zealand, and uh, Alex Cheka, who's a very interesting uh, Czech, as you could guess, who swam across the river in those days to West Germany, started playing golf when he was 16, pro golf. So we had three elements, and Peter Jacobson was our sort of uh, PGA advisor. So we had we had a foursome, but it was clicking, it was working, and then, you know, kind of aware of the amateur world. And if you were following amateur golf, he could not avoid Tiger. He was at Stanford. And lo and behold, the U.S. Am was being played up in Portland at our home course where, where we were members. I don't know. I thought it was going to be an opportunity. So I, I basically hired the portion of the clubhouse where the bar was, a nice meeting area. And uh, we had guests out. And um, on the qualifier day, I got a call from Phil about noon. He said, hey, Bob, do you think we could get tickets and go over to the tournament? <laughs> Pretty sure we could. So we went over, and this was the playoff where they had like six players and only four slots. So it was a, it was a sudden death playoff, hole by hole. And uh, we watched. It was exciting. And finally, quite a few holes because the guys were so nervous. And finally, they got down to four. The next day was the first day of the tournament. And um, Phil again called it at 12 and said, do you think we could go over? And we So we went over, and uh, I'm new to this whole type of world. So... I didn't know if Phil could actually talk to Tiger. Probably not, but he could talk to Butch Harmon, who was who was his coach. And Phil, as you know, is an ex-coach. So the two of them fell into And pretty soon they hit it off. And so, you know, the next day we came again and uh, we followed Tiger very closely. And, and finally on Sunday, you, they play 18 uh, in the morning, 18 in the afternoon. And um, Phil really wanted to watch Tiger. So, you know, we got him a little... Uh, like a uniform, course worker uniform, so Phil could watch. And uh, he'd never had any interface with Tiger, but he watched him. And, uh, you know, that night Tiger won on the 36th hole. It was quite a big celebration. And uh, a couple of days later, Phil called me up the office and he said, look, you know, Tiger's at Stanford. And if he's going to stay at Stanford, let's hope he gets his PhD because he's one hell of a golfer and he's gonna, he could really impact the industry. He said, on the other hand, if he's not going to get his PhD at Stanford, let's see if we can sign him in the next few weeks if he's interested. And uh, that started the wheels going at Nike. They have a team that does this. It's not me. It wasn't Joe or, or, or Rod Tallman. It was a team of guys. They got working with Tiger and solved all the problems and brought him on board. And lots of people don't know, but the creative director, Wyden and Kennedy, is a, is a one handicapper, which is a really good golfer. He was very excited to see Tiger coming onto the team. And so... They uh, led that collaboration, made all those fantastic ads. I'm sure you remember the I Am Tiger Woods ads with all the little kids and so on. It was, it was a fantastic experience, and it just clicked and got a life of its own. And, uh, you know, several years later, I mean, a couple of years back again, I, on Phil's birthday, I had the chance to talk to him. I think it was his birthday. Uh, not so much about the thises and the thats, but that now that golf is for everybody, plain and simple, and not only in the U.S., all around the world, and I think we can claim a big role in that. So I'm proud of that. Really neat in terms of just injecting some of those values and in, into golf, which was obviously not as much of a forward looking progressive sport at that time. Yeah. They're doing quite a good job now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love to fast forward and just, just this idea of a visionary and an operator and just the idea of it coming into some 
hopefully some creative conflict in a positive sense, but also probably some, some challenges is, do you mind just sharing an example of just how those forces come together, whether it was at Reef or at Sanuk in terms of how you partnered with a visionary founder to really bring that business to life and operationalize it? Well, it's a little bit different. I mean, if you start with, just to give you an idea that the difference between a visionary and somebody like me is, so Phil has watched Tiger play golf for three days. And uh, he told me at one point, maybe the ensuing couple of days, I can't remember. He said, Bob, you know that Tiger Woods is going to be the first billion dollar athlete, single athlete in the history of sports. And that really, well, I've been involved in this for six months and never occurred to me. <laughs> so Phil saw right away that he saw that the market was right, that it deserved to be disrupted by values and that he was willing to put the a portion of the wealth that Nike had into this mission to make golf open and available to everyone. Never mind all this racist, sexist, elitist stuff. Just plain and simple bulldoze our way in with our values, not with our pocketbook, not by trying to hire everybody on the tour, but by being focused. So that was a revelation for me. And, uh, you know, in, in my career going down the path, you know, that when we got to, to, uh, chance to work with Ely Callaway next. I mean, here's another complete, amazing visionary. As you know, Ely uh, invented the big head, big club head, big birth, as he called it. And it was completely rejected by the professional golfers, whether they were teachers or pro, pro players, and it pissed them off. And he, he's really amazing, amazing person. But, you know, Ely just decided, you know, so you have the traditional pyramid, right? You got the pro golfer at the top. And as you go down the, the typical pyramid, you know, you get down to the guy who can only play once a month and has got used clubs, right? And so that's the spectrum of use. Ely's genius was, he said, listen, our clubs make golf more fun for more people, and we don't mind if pros use them too. So he took the pyramid of influence and turned it upside down and completely, as you know, wrecked the golf industry with innovation and science. And it's, you know, it's, it obviously has prospered and continued along in the current management and Callaway has embraced that idea. So it's, it was really fantastic to see his vision. His vision is we can make golf a lot more fun for a lot more people. Why don't we do that? And his enemy was the USGA traditional thinking pros. And he didn't care about that. Just head down. This is what we're going to do. We did it. It's pretty cool. But the next stop for me was, was working with Fernando and Santi down at Reef. And uh, Reef uh, was built on the backs of these two genius brothers. I mean, fantastic brothers. But what I would say with kind of poor infrastructure, really great CFO, and then kind of chaos below organizationally. So the mission at Reef was to um, help Fernando and Santiago relieve themselves of the day-to-day duties, which, by the way, they were covering over, like both brothers wanted to do design, both wanted to do marketing. Nobody wanted to do finance, everybody, you know, that type of thing. So we just organized that. That was different than any challenge I had. It was just simply trying to think through what an organization chart is based on function, not on friendship. And, you know, and, and uh, prove to the brothers, to the owners that this could work. And then, uh, you know, the business accelerated very quickly when we got it organized and it became a candidate for a sale. And Fernando and Santiago did very well with it. It was a big sale, big transaction, and the business was super successful. So everybody happy there, except for me, because I didn't have a job because we sold the company. So I ran into Jeff Kelly and it really started the next element in my life because Jeff is a mad inventor. Everything he sees around him can be done better if he just had time to do it. And I'm telling you virtually, that's how his brain operates. So uh, he has many, many ideas. 
little bit later in our in our friendship, we went to the Hong Kong Toy Fair. It was a tragic mistake on my part because we took him into the. I accompanied him in the Toy Fair. I don't think in a day. I don't think we got more than a hundred yards because there were vendors on each side, and everyone that Jeff looked at was awesome, and it set off his bells. You know, it was really cool. So Jeff was really a super creative guy, and and he did a really wise thing. He asked himself, said, what am I good at? What am I not good at? How can I cover my weaknesses? And so he decided that, you know, he's really the design guy and design and developer, but he doesn't want to manufacture. He likes to market. He doesn't want to sell, although he's a good salesman. So he decided that uh, he'd partner up with a, a lawyer to make sure he had all that type of thinking squared away and some a lineal brain next to an erratic one, which was Jeff's. And the, the two of them started Sinook. Instead of dealing with the challenges of manufacturing and distribution, they hired a distributor and gave them a long time, long term contract to handle that stuff. I didn't really understand this when when I met Jeff. We're surfing one morning. He said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, we sold reef. I'm not doing anything." He said, "Well, you should come to work with us." And I thought, "Well, that's great because I thought us was Jeff," <laughs> but I came to find out that us was the distributor, CNC Traders, two really great guys that ran it. So then the job became interesting, um, a challenge because we have the creativity on Jeff on one side, and then you have the distributors on the other side. The distributors have to fund all the stuff that to pay for the research, have to pay for all the investigations we did, and they got to reap the benefits of the success, and they also got to pay for the the mistakes we made. So there's a lot of dynamics going on there. But we were able to uh, to bring Jeff's ideas together. Um, we started off on the sandal project. There was a lot of sandals. I just came from Reef. It was easy for me to, to help Jeff decide what to do to create a sandal line. That was easy. And we actually created that those first sandal lines out of a box of samples that Jeff's team had in the office. We didn't have to do any research, go to China, do anything. Jeff had made so many samples, and they'd been rejected for one reason or the other, that when we got our act together and put them together and priced them correctly, we were quite successful. But meanwhile, Jeff was thinking about this, the, the famous sidewalk surfer, which is the sandal shoe. Nobody had ever done that. I mean, if you walk in a three-point sandal, it's, it's very liberating compared to a shoe. But you're always holding on with your toes. I don't know if you notice that, Darren. You walk along, you hold on with your toes a little bit. And Jeff's idea was, well, what if you didn't have to hold on with your toes, but everything else felt like a sandal? So he invented this cool little way of putting a deconstructed shoe on a sandal bottom. I think you know the results were consequential. It was a fantastic idea. and. Uh, and we brought it together. And at that point in my, in my life, I was able to really oversee design, development, manufacturing, sales, importation, and working with CNC to purchase. And to their credit, they put up money right and left to help us succeed. And it really worked. And the business was sold for a very, for a big number. You know, they, they went away happy. But Jeff is truly a visionary. It's interesting um, now, and you should talk to Jeff. He's local, but you know, the, the sale of Sanook was not Jeff's finish line. It was his start line. And now he's, uh, you know, busy in a million things. And uh, I'm telling you, every single day, he sees something he could do and fix and make better. It's really, he's a fantastic person to have for a friend. Yeah. Well, and it was just a fantastic success story too, and a unique guy. So talk to me about that partnership in terms of whether it was working with him or the two brothers at Reef and how did that creative tension, how did you manage that? How did you make sure that it was productive and not destructive? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I would say it's always probably 51% destructive. Here at, at SDSI, now we've, we've started, helped jumpstart here, 130 companies at SDSI in our accelerator. So my vision backwards, uh, first of all, you have to go through the filter of ego. 
realizing that uh, decisions that I was involved with and circumstances are, you know, when you view through your ego, it's, it, you're, you tend to be apologetic for yourself. Right. But nonetheless, at some point you have to overcome this thing. It's called founderitis. Not all founders have it, but many do. And it's sort of the inability of the founder to, uh, to really get out of the way and to quit preventing the, the brand from reaching, uh, it's logical size because you're seeking perfection or you don't like this or that, or you can't let go of the design. That's one of the hardest things, Darren. It's a tough game. And some days it's positive. Some days, like when Jeff said, well, you're not doing your job to make my dream come true. It's, it's, it's crushing because you're operating 25 salesmen and who knows, two factories and all this stuff and a bunch of countries uh, internationally, you know, you're doing your best, but still uh, most entrepreneurs are very unforgiving and demanding. So it's a tough task, and that's why, uh, you know, I think a lot of people like me tend to stay in these jobs for three or four years and move on because you can only carry the ball forward so far. It's a rare guy who is a founder who's super collaborative about these types of operational issues. Uh, bear in mind, if you're working with a really, truly creative people, they're, they're sharing their dream for their brand with you. Everything you estimate you can do is often viewed by a founder as a promise. So, you know, think about it. You, you're going to break some promises as you go along, break some hearts too. So it's, it's been tough. And, uh, you know, after really working with Sanook, I sort of decided I didn't want to uh, be in that position any longer. And uh, we did this little experimental company, sold quite a few stand-up boards initially. We partnered up with some Hawaiian guys and just when uh, stand-up paddling was just starting to be known, we bought a little company. We, Mike Fox, bought a little company, brought me in as a partner. And we did the same thing. Mike, Mike had a vision. He provided the money. We tried to make it happen. And we really accelerated the sale of uh, stand-up boards around, geez, everywhere. I mean, it's very significant. But at the end of the day, you know, it was an unequal partnership and you know, Mike lived in Park City. I lived here. The business was here. He was there. You, we got into those kind of conversations. They're very unfortunate about who's doing what. And it was just time for me to go. So um, um, I networked uh, up with a, a friend who was just starting a little company called OTZ Shoes. And uh, Darren, that was a different situation because it's right in the wheelhouse. What we know how to do, the designer, the original designer and owner, super visionary guy, super easy to work with. And we got that company up and rolling in three years and had an unexpectedly high offer for it. Such a good offer that there was really no choice but to sell it. And so we sold it and uh, I called up the guys who are in charge of San Diego Sport Innovators and said, I have a candidate. And my friend, uh, John Sarkeesian said, is it you? I go, no, it's not me. It's a friend. It'd be great for SDSI. I said, you should do it. It's just a part-time job. You know, you make a few bucks and, and uh, it'll be fun for you. So I thought, well, should I have had all this experience? I should try it. I think he deceived me. I think what he said was, in reality, it's at least a full-time job with part-time pay. So for the last six years, as you know, we've been working hard at, at what we do here at SDSI, which is basically we formed a local community where there wasn't one of people who are in the lifestyle industry in San Diego. It turned out to be something very significant. Bill Walton joined us uh, 11 years ago. Everybody knows Big Bill. Not everybody knows he's a dedicated cyclist. He had a vision for San Diego that we could be the cycling capital of the United States. Why wouldn't we be? We have an ocean and all this great ground. And so when, when Bill 
uh, joined SDSI to dimensionalize the whole program. And now our membership is from Sony to, uh, gosh, I don't know, to the smallest little bookkeeping company. There's 130 companies. We've quantified our industry. We're about $5 billion industry in San Diego lifestyle, if you can believe it, here in the county. We represent about 1,200 businesses. We meet once a quarter. I don't know if anybody listens to this and interested in knowing more, then go to our website. This is not designed to be an ad, but it's a really fun community. And uh, it's amazing how collaborative it is and how helpful it is. So what we do with our, our membership funds, among the things we do is we help these companies do well. Of course, that's the primary interest of a business development organization, but we also help them do good. And uh, we support Lucky Duck Foundation. We support all kinds of good initiatives around town. And the best thing that we do is we conduct this accelerator for small companies. And it's a 20-week program. Each company, we run about 10 a cohort, so two cohorts a year, 10 companies. Each one of those companies gets uh, four experts in different domains to help them succeed. So over the history of these uh, graduates, there have been 130 graduates. They are uh, 85% successful, which is a big number. Uh, they're 51% technology, sport technology-based. A large percentage of them are uh, in the food stuff, foodwares uh, uh, category also, you know, especially with the advent of good, of good eating. And what's really interesting is that uh, 51% of the founders are female. So those are really amazing metrics. And I, oh, the last one, we've raised, helped them raise about $90 million. So this, this tiny little acorn, you know, of a, of a business development organization has blossomed into something that's really exciting. And I feel so lucky to be a part of it. You mentioned something really interesting is that do well and do good. How do you help founders in these early stage companies manage those what are often two very competing interests? Yeah, it's really hard. But, you know, putting young companies through a business accelerator is, is no, no different in some respects than, you know, say, for instance, working with Jeff Kelly. You have a young person with a vision and your job in this case is to be a mentor and help bring that vision to life. Right. The difference is the way young people do business has changed substantially. And so now I'm not too sure who's guiding who, who's, who's learning and who's teaching uh, at any one moment, I think, is up in the air. Because a lot of the experiences that old people like I have had in terms of operations and so on is, is, is not so relevant any longer, Darren. You know, now with the, with the Internet, you can quickly form a company. You can go to Alibaba, get your products made. You can distribute them. And you can find yourself in, in several of these companies, many of these companies, find themselves with a million or two in sales, but no infrastructure. <laughs> so it's like, what do we do? That's been uh, where we're able to come in and help them get organized and just do well. But many of them are also cause-based and give, you know, 1% to a, of their revenues to, to uh, something they believe in. And they bring that forward right from the beginning. For the older companies, it's a, it's a different game. If you have a lot of, of revenue, uh, I'll give you an example. We have an upcoming board meeting uh, here pretty soon, the end of the month, the beautiful Alila Morea here in Lucadia. And we're going to focus in on homelessness in San Diego. And we've invited the founder of the Lucky Duck Foundation, who's a gentleman who's provided those three big tents down on the uh, waterfront and funded them uh, with two of his partners themselves, come in to tell us how our group can help them. They are housing 500 people a night. They're approaching their millionth free meal for these people. It's really a fantastic thing. And Last year, we donated, I think, 125 
all-weather jackets that actually convert into a sleeping bag. So it's a, it's a small thing, but it's something that we can do. And it's a reminder that uh, to everybody in an organization that's, that you can do better. Now, there's so much good to be done in the world. It's fantastic that you're doing that through SDSI, but also in terms of your companies, in terms of they're founded on the premise of not just doing well, not just about shareholders and profits, but really thinking about doing what, doing good for the world. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, a very necessary component of young companies. They're completely dedicated to all the elements of what it takes you know, to be uh, environmentally aware. Talk to me about that a little bit in terms of about how you help companies to develop that as part of their offering, if you will, in terms of to the marketplace and how they make it part of their brand, how they make it part of their employee value proposition. How do you help companies become more focused on doing good, not just doing well? Well, I, I think, again, it depends whether you're in the startup community or, or uh, uh, dealing with large companies. The larger companies often offload this to HR as a way to get away from it. But the brands, you know, if you if you look Patagonia be the champion, right? You look at Patagonia, this is this is in the fabric of the brand. It's not something you think about, it's something you do, of course, it's something you do. And you put your you put your uh, mouth where your money is. Other companies are a little harder to get to the table, but if you look at locally some successful companies, Lucky Duck, Challenge Athlete Foundation, fantastic charity as opposed to we're a business development organization. We tell people if you have money to give to charity, please give it to Lucky Duck or to Challenge Athlete. We're not a charity. We're trying to help our people make money. I think it's constantly exposing CEOs and, and HR directors to the opportunity to be a, play a bigger role in the community in San Diego. So one of the things that, that's happened for us, Darren, over this time frame is that um, because of Bill, our exposure inside the, the San Diego economy is much greater than you would expect for a a three-person company like we have, we are able to participate in, in little things like, you know, quantifying the size of our industry, which gives us a, a better chance. For instance, our our component of the industry is, is bigger than the famous San Diego Zoo. So, we, you know, we're not small any longer. We have some muscle and we, and we just have to continually bring people back to places like the Lucky Duck Foundation or the Padres have a pedal for the cause. So there's all kinds of of really good philanthropic opportunities. And, and for the larger companies that have this type of money, it's a question of just making sure that they know that there's an opportunity to participate. Younger companies, it's a different thing. We're making sausages. You don't want to know what's in there, but basically if you imagine a funnel, we're, we're putting marketing talk in the funnel and what's coming out on the other end is a, is a business plan and finance talk so that these young companies can present themselves to an investor or to anybody else in five minutes and tell them what they're up to and if they have a need, if they haven't asked what the ask is. But you'll find fundamental in all of those companies some sense of uh, environmentalism that's just simply baked into it. And it's not something they bring forward in the beginning. What would be your advice to other companies, more legacy organizations who have not tapped into that? I, I know everyone, it's, it's a big thing, right? Corporate social responsibility. But how can companies become not just aware of it, but actually how you can, can actually execute on it, but doing so in an authentic way. Well, I mean, that's, that's a trick. I'll give you a good example. Qualcomm does a really good thing. In the foundation, they have a, uh, a process where you can compete for an investment in your not-for-profit, and you go down and you pitch it, but you pitch it to their employees, and their pl- employees grade you. You start off wanting to, to pitch to Qualcomm, but through an employee, usually an employee who's a volunteer on your board. 
And if the employee feels that you're worthy, then they present you to Qualcomm and Qualcomm selects 10 candidates and you go down and, and you pitch yourself. The employees vote on you. You know, I think it is a question of authenticity at that point and how, how believable you are. So that's a good thing to do. You know, so it's it's a great thing. Uh, somebody big like TaylorMade or, or uh, Callaway could easily do the same thing with their team. So if you get engagement from your employees, that makes it much more meaningful, much more meaningful. And there's so many things, you know, Darren, in our in our world here that just, just think about the challenges that uh, poor young kids might have down close to the border where they don't have school and they don't have internet, they don't have a computer, how are they supposed to get educated? There are so many opportunities here in San Diego to do good that uh, if anybody listens to this and doesn't have an idea how they can help, they can certainly call me. I'd be happy to <laughs> turn them loose on, on the many things we try to do to help. That's fantastic. I always thought, you know, we could solve many of the world's ills if everybody volunteered, I don't know, four hours a week in terms of giving back and so many problems that are imminently solvable if we actually just put some effort and intention to it. Yeah, it starts at home, doesn't it? And uh, that's one of the reasons I have grown into this job because, you know, my personal mission is to help one company or one person each day. And if you think about uh, the long corporate career all of us have had and all the unfortunate things that happened, I, I hope I can hold on to this job for about 20 years so I can get the karma account squared away. But it's a, it's a pleasure to open the door here in the morning and a pleasure to go home at night. It's really a great thing. What are some of the lessons that you gained? And you talked about being a corporate refugee and climbing back down the ladder. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from the, the hard knocks of the corporate world, of the Nikes of the world, that you've brought back to help some of these earlier stage, smaller companies be successful? Well, I think the first thing that I, that I learned is, is to be honest with yourself about who you are. The second thing is networking counts. That circle of friends probably holds the path to your future somehow. I mean, in my case, I look at my crazy life. I happened to know the Merrill guys, happened to meet Ralph and Jerry Lauren, unbelievable, happened to work for Phil. I mean, these are all the consequences of networking, not getting hired off a resume. The third thing is I wish I had gotten at least through accounting and my limited attempt at higher education because the, the one place where you can't really finesse things with your good looks, class, charm, and intelligence is finance. You know, no amount of charm is going to cover for your ignorance in finance. And I, I point back to Clark John and my experience uh, back in the day at Merrill, where we managed to elude making any money off of the transaction sale, sale of Merrill. Very unfortunate. It would never happen again. And I'll have to say, you know, Darren, I won't mention any names, but the same sort of situation has popped up in my ensuing business life. And it was really nice to be able to head it off at the pass and take care of the employees. The best ever example of employee wealth management's right here in the county with Taylor Guitars, where the employees woke up this year on the 5th of January to discover that the owners had basically given the company to them. Really a fantastic story of a, you know, an employee stock option program that really worked, ESOP program. That's fantastic. Yeah, tell me more about that. I hadn't heard about that. Well, I mean, it's hard to explain, but uh, the the bottom line is that the, the two founders had Taylor Guitars value their employees. They know that the reason Taylor's successful is all the artisans that they have around the world. And by the way, they are all around the world. So it's uh, come a near retirement, semi-retirement for the two founders. And they decided that the, rather than sell the company to the VC firm or do something like other people might do, they decided they would gift it back to the employees. 
So their uh, CFO, Barbara White, did a fantastic job, got some great tax counsel, and they put a package together that basically transferred the ownership of Taylor Guitars to the employees around the world. And what I found really interesting is that if your job was duplicated in another country, let's say, for instance, in Mexico, where they have a fabulous guitar factory, your compensation is based on your job definition, not your location. So if you're in Mexico and you got this allocation of, of stock uh, basically gifted to you as a reward for your employment, it has a bigger impact than, than it might in the United States. It might be transgenerational wealth, for instance. So it's really a fantastic thing. And, and, you know, Darren, this is something super overlooked in the surf industry and everybody here, in, almost everybody here in San Diego is that there's an obligation, especially in a fast-growing company, to, to share the wealth with the employees. That's the best retention strategy. Assuming everything else is the same in our businesses, and they often are, we know all our brands, right? We know a lot of the players in the brands, and we've grown up with a lot of them. But the difference between company A and B might be how they approach the financial wealth of their employees. And it's a little soapbox I like to get on all the time that uh, if you want to keep your employees over a lifetime, we'll treat them correctly. So at the end of a lifetime, that, that, that they have enough money to retire. Otherwise, we're just in the squirrel cage. And that's, you know, that's why I slowly but surely decided I don't like corporate life. There's a, it's, I was surrounded by people much smarter than me. I didn't feel like the victim, but I sort of felt like I fooled myself over and over and over again. And so it was, it was fun to get back down the grassroots and, and help young people start businesses. And, you know, the advice that I have for young companies is pay attention, you know, to your finances, raise money through debt. If you can, don't take on partnerships. They seldom work, off, work out. You can, always, you can always pay off a loan, but you can never get rid of a partner. So it's, you know, it's that type of stuff that I try and pass on to them with all the wisdom I can at the same time absorbing how to sell in the multi-channel market, how to, how to sell in a global market, how to understand that the FedEx and, and UPS are more important to distribution than your own capabilities and so on. So there's a lot going on, a lot of mutual learning happening at the same time. Yeah, a lot of complexity. I love that, though, in terms of the mutual learning. We always have things to learn from, not just because we're the leader, or the, the head of an organization or head of a team. There's so much that we can learn from the people on our teams. Yes. Well, if you, if you look at the different organization charts, how they're presented around the world, you know, in America, you have the typical hierarchy one, like the command and control, right? This is alpha, the top, followed by beta, all the way down to, you know, whatever, the zeta at the end. But you know what? In the, for young uh, companies, that really doesn't work. And the, most of the young companies now are really focused in on the consumer. And as I, I told you once, Darren, one of our talks that, you know, in my day when you produce product, you actually produced it with the retailer or retail channel that you had in mind. You had certain price parameters, you know, that Mr. A can only sell in his store. He can't sell above 50 bucks. So you have to design product for him so he can sell it successfully. These young companies, because of the, the uh, direct-to-consumer models now, they're designing products for the end consumer. They're not designing products or services to be uh, necessarily retailed, if you will. So there's a, there's a, a lot of learning that goes on with that. You can imagine, you know, now it's really understanding, deep understanding of the end consumer. The end consumer is not the retailer. It's actually the consumer. And so it's a big change in attitude. And when you see it work at scale, it's really, really amazing. I give you a Viore clothing company, local one, super successful, built on a, initially on a direct-to-consumer model with, with the fabrics that have a beautiful hand that the minute you touch them, that's all you want to own for the, for the foreseeable future. 
it's worked uh, uh, fantastically well. And uh, same thing with Sunbum. The founder of Sunbum somehow has that mother's intuition about, about skincare and an attitude that, uh, hey, you don't have to use Sunbum to protect your child's skin or your skin, but make sure you use somebody's. And that changes the message from, hey, buy my stuff, I want to make money, to, hey, you know, be, be a concerned citizen and, you know, make sure that you're taking care of your family or yourself first. And by the way, we sell products that can help. We hope, we hope you choose us. That's a different, completely different attitude, Darren. I think very contemporary point of view from those two companies. A lot to learn from. Yeah, enabled by that direct-to-consumer model where you can truly focus on your buyer. And it's interesting how a new business model is really enabled by technology, but also it's enabling a greater sense of customer centricity, like true customer centricity. I mean, a true, deep uh, understanding consumer products is super important right now. You cannot succeed with it. And uh, I'm, I'm also happy. I think the, one of the consequences of that is that this labeling that we see so often, uh, you know, industry, which is copycat business, I believe is beginning to disappear. It's much harder now to sell a label. The only way you can sell the labels is off price. So it's sort of a self-identifier. So I believe branding is on the rise and that authenticity is uh, super important. That's interesting. That almost runs counter to what probably conventional wisdom in terms of copycatting going away because of the rise of the brand, the importance of branding and all that. That's a fascinating point of view. I'm not sure it's true, but I I think that consumers are, are getting more tribal and uh, are more careful about the brands that they, that they select. We've talked about this, but the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And if you're running a brand that the consumer is indifferent to, you are a label. A brand elicits an emotional response from the consumer, good or bad. So, but the worst thing is, is nothing. And so I think today that... Uh, Consumer engagement is super important, and it, and it relates back to the first point that, you know, you have to be designing your products and, and service with a deep understanding of the end user, plain and simple. And if, if you do that, you're automatically authentic. And the, you can take missteps from there. You can, you can do wrong things easily, and you can jeopardize that relationship with the consumer. But my experience with the consumer is that they're very judgmental. You get one, one swing at the ball, more or less, and that's it. You know, this is the time I, I believe, you know, I believe in the, the rise of branding. Well, I think it goes back to also in terms of how brands are created. It's through a lot of co-creation with, with whether it's athletes or whether it's their consumer in terms of new products they put out, the use of social media, like truly authentic, less of top-down chief marketing officer branding and more of the ground up, the grassroots efforts that are actually featuring the consumers and how they're using the products leads to, I can imagine what you're saying, great old tribalism around brands. One of the really cool things that's going on right now that people don't talk much about, you know, we have all these changes going on in the economy. It's all great home, home officing and, you know, liberation from the traditional work day and all, all these sort of things are really, are really great things for us personally. And, and believe me, in the, in the sport active and healthy living sector, anybody with a significant brand has really, really had a great year because people are outdoors and getting healthy. It's a wonderful thing, you know, but, uh, at the end of the day, you don't have to go to school to do this any longer. Self-learning is on the really fast rise, and it gets no credit. I mean, I don't know about you, Darren. I can't figure out something, I go to YouTube. And short of brain surgery, I've seldom been stumped. You know, I mean, it, whatever it is you need to do is there. And, and I believe that 
these young people are, are so uh, digitally native that, that their resources are exponentially higher than traditional business people. And they can get themselves so informed about a task so quickly. It's really amazing. And I am always surprised in the job search that young people don't spend more, more time doing what they do naturally, which is to simply get after it, find out what the job description is, look up what the job definition is, which you can easily find, look up people who've had experiences in that, and then apply for a job. Chances are you're going to do pretty well if you go at it that way. It was definitely a wealth of information. Yeah, I interviewed a uh, professional golfer for my book, and he actually didn't have a swing coach. YouTube was his swing coach, which I thought was pretty fascinating. It, it was a successful guy too, right? You don't think about YouTube as being the teacher of pro athletes, but there's definitely a, a tremendous amount of information out there. Yeah, it, it's really true. But, it, you know, but it's also very focused. We see it in the uh, young companies that, are, that come through the accelerators that there'll be a component of that business where they're super familiar, more familiar than, for instance, the mentor might be. And they've just, you know, they've taken a couple of days and dug in and self-educated. So it's interesting to see the profile of these young entrepreneurs because they often are not college graduates. They might be in year one or year two of their education and hit upon what is for them what the answer is, what their life dream has been to this point. And they can stop now, find friends through their social networks, self-educate, get started, maybe get the product made somehow and, and sell it. Uh, in a variety of ways and, and actually are ex- going through that process in, in two years where, you know, I'm thinking in my case, it might be five or six or seven years. Or as, as Jeff Kelly said, after 20 years, he's an overnight success. These young people will be successful much more quickly or fail. Either one is fine. You know, when you're in, in that time in life when you can afford risk and then you give it a, you do what you can do and see what happens. If it doesn't work, you go back to ground zero and restart. Times have changed, Darren. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about my kids and just whether they're learning the right things, you know, and whether and that's a whole nother topic, but just making sure that they're, hopefully they're learning how to learn, learning how to think. And then it's about adopting all these other tools, learning about business, learning about technology and how they can apply it, whether they go down the more traditional career path, if that's even exists anymore, working for a company versus starting your own thing, which seems to be more and more prevalent, whether it's a professional services company or a products company or you know, technology company or whatnot. So making sure that they can master the art of learning and growing and getting better all the time. Yeah, I'll just add the word nimble to that, nimble thinking. I think the path of public education is a compressive one. You start off with an open mind, by, by the end of it, you may have a closed mind. <laughs> it should be going the other way around, right? So uh, to me, it's like you know, in, in inculcating the, the, uh, the, the principles that you believe in as a family. As the, as the building block, and then, you know, be having a nimble mind, being prepared to process all the things you're seeing, but putting them through the value system that you believe in and never giving up on your values. It's a complicated world because there's a lot of invaders going on in that, <laughs> that process, as you'll find out. Yeah, including invaders in your own head, whether it's pressure from the marketplace, from family, friends, media, et cetera. It's like keeping those invaders out and you have values and anchoring those, using those to guide your decisions. I, I know I use them every day to stay on track and avoid those shiny objects and temptations. I try to, I, I look at, uh, I look at other people. Occasionally you can see the day in the life of Mr. X. And I'm always curious to see how it works to see uh, when people's value time is, if it's early or late. And uh, I know that uh, I, I, I try to use the early morning to balance my time, figure it out. 
get the creative stuff done before all those things you're talking about kind of implode and uh, steal the day and steal your brain as well. But, but it's, a, it's a super modern time, and Darren, and, and I, I really thank you for, uh, you know, respecting us old people who have some had some experiences. We're trying to pass them on. If we can help anybody, we're, we'd like to do it if they're in our space. I appreciate your time, and you have so much wisdom. I appreciate you sharing that with these young upstarts as entrepreneurs, but also just how you're encouraging companies and people to give back to the local community and the broader community. Because I think that's such an important thing. But Bob, I truly appreciate your time. Where can people go to find out more about SDSI, whether they're an aspiring entrepreneur, whether they want to get involved as a mentor? Yeah, just just go to uh, SDSI website is the easiest way. And, uh, you know, we can also be a clearinghouse for lots of things. I'm thinking about the Rob Machado Foundation has a fundraiser coming up and he's doing great things. There's, there's a lot of really good that's going on in the community. So if they want to intersect with us, they go to the website. A lot of the stuff is there if they need further uh, information they just email us through the website and we'll be happy to get back to them there well bob thanks for your time appreciate you coming on Uh, thank you thanks so much thanks for listening to today's episode of the savage leader podcast my hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career if you're looking for additional insight and tactics be sure to check out my book titled the savage leader 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.